This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we're thrilled to welcome Frank Bruni, author and popular op-ed columnist for The New York Times, who joins us to discuss his latest book, Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be, an antidote to the college admissions mania. Talking to NYPL's own Jessica Strand, Bruni reflects on modern anxieties, higher education, and what truly defines success. I wanted to start with asking you about your college admission experience when you applied to college before we get into sort of the details of what's going on now. Sure, yeah. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of New York and then in the suburbs of Hartford, Connecticut. Um, I went to a private school there, so by the standards of that moment, which much less heated than now. It was very intense and there was a lot of anxiety. I grew up in a family that was very conscious of colleges. My mother would drive through the suburb and she would look at the back windshields of cars and she would read the stickers out and she would say, hmm, Dartmouth, Duke, Amherst, they did well, you know. Or she would read a less vaunted lineup and she would sigh and feel bad for the parent driving that car. So that's, so I grew up in what I thought was a pressure cooker environment in that way. Um, I uh, set my sights on Yale, um, and I was lucky I got in early to Yale. I don't think I'd get in early to Yale or any Ivy League school today because it's a much different moment. Um, but then I was given a, a, a free ride merit-based scholarship to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And to the surprise of many of my peers, I decided to go to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is where I uh, Oh, got that's so interesting. Okay. So um, I'm also wondering, just... There seem to be an enormous amount of books coming out. I mean, I realize this is a time of year when college students, I mean, high school students hear about their admission to college. But also, what is, why are we getting all these books on education, uh, college education, uh, how the prices, I mean, because it's so expensive, because, I mean, what is the interest and why is that happening? Part of the answer is in your question. I think the cost of college has risen so high that people are asking tougher questions about whether it's worth it, uh, about why it needs to be that high, does it need to be that high. Um, I also think we're seeing more and more good studies about the incredible difference later in life between people who've graduated from college and people who haven't. And so we kind of know that that's a big factor in social mobility in the country. So I think understanding better the benefit of college and then looking at the cost of college has made everyone want to investigate higher education um, in a much more intensive way, and that's, that's, most of the books do that. And even the, I mean, I was watching, because I read your book, and then I read, I, I watched Ivory Tower. Oh, Andrew and, Rossi's documentary, yeah, yeah and I was And I was struck by this whole group in San Francisco who are sort of the anti-college Peter group. Thiel and all yeah, of them, yeah. yeah. I, I, I believe in college because I think, one of, I have a big problem with the conversation about is college worth it? Um, because that, con that, that question in that conversation is entirely about professional utility. Sure. And it kind of casts college in a vocational role. 
And I think if you can, I mean, and, and, and you're blessed if you can, but if college is economically attainable, if it's within your reach, it's not just about preparing for a job. It's about becoming a better citizen. It's about becoming a bigger person. And I would hate for us to lose sight of that as we do this dollar and cents analysis of whether college is financially worth it. I have one more question out of that, and then we're going to move to the book a bit. But I, what do you think of these MOOCs? <laughs> the massive, are, massive <laughs> online, yeah. Yeah, these are these enormous classes where anyone in the world can take them, and they're terrific professors from sort of the most notable universities in the world, actually. I think at Cambridge also does them. And um, what, what's your thought? There's no interaction. There's no, I mean, you can take the class and probably right. learn quite a bit, but there's none of really the experience one has in a college classroom right. sitting there and having the chance to interact, even if it's a large class, you can decide after to interact. Right. Well, I mean, I think that MOOC phenomenon is too young for us to know just how effective those courses are. If, if, if it's a MOOC or nothing, then I think that's a good thing. Right. But I would, hate for us to, I would hate for us, before we know more about them, to say this is just as good as being in a classroom. Sure. Because I do think there are benefits to being in a classroom, interacting with fellow students. I think there's a level of accountability that can take place when you're in a class with a professor that might not take place when you're interacting online. But it's a very young phenomenon, so I think we have more questions than answers. Um, okay, now I want to discuss your book, and I want to just talk about, and we were talking in the green space or sort of room behind this stage about just how we prepare or one prepares their children for college. And it can start very, very young um, with this. I mean, you cite several groups or costs that it may entail. There's the Aristotle group or circle that starts for pre case children and so you're sort of building their resume all the way up yeah. and then there's all this preparatory work that could cost thirty thousand dollars a year starting in like sixth or seventh grade to sort of build a resume for college sure. um, there's the boot camp that you can do to I probably in your junior year so you can write adequate applications to college is this a phenomenon that's really happening let's say, in New York, San Francisco, Chicago. Is this a phenomenon that goes on everywhere? I mean, what, what, where does this begin and where does this end? And also, the second part of the question, do college admissions people, wouldn't they realize or notice that this seemed like a particular kind of resume, that it had been overworked? there was nothing organically lively, real, individual about it because you had to sort of, you know, check off all these, I mean... Well, to your, to your first question, um, this isn't a phenomenon that is nationwide, but it certainly isn't just isolated to New York. It is, I mean, New York is ground zero for that sort of thing, and everything is amplified here, and that's amplified even more than most of the stuff that gets amplified here. But you find, um, I'm going to speak in the next couple of weeks at a couple schools in suburban Washington, D.C. Every bit as intense there as it is here. I'm going to be speaking at some schools in Chicago. That's another area, the Bay Area of California. In certain zip codes in L.A., it's just like this. It's a cosmopolitan phenomenon, but it's not a New York or Northeastern Boston, we should mention, is another area where you would find a lot of this. Um, yes, some of this stuff is transparent to admissions committees. But there are things you can, uh, all of these schools, 
um, care about, for example, the SAT scores or the ACT scores of the students they admit. And they care about it not just as a predictor of academic success, which it turns out it's a very bad one. GPA is a much greater predictor of academic success than SATs or ACTs. But you can put on your college's website profile and all of that, you can put what the, what the median SATs or ACTs of the incoming students are, and that's become a source of bragging rights for colleges, right? So they, now I, I mention those because you can look through a, an overly massaged essay. Um, you can look through a lot of that stuff. You're still gonna be impressed by and respond to the high ACT or SAT score. And we know from studies that high SAT scores correlate almost perfectly with wealth of family background. That's what you say. Right. So what does that tell you? It tells you that with enough prep and enough free time to study for the SAT and all that. You can do well. Right. And the kind of education that's often been purchased from K through 12, you're going to do better on that test. So there are things that wealth can buy you right. in terms of impressing the college admissions committee that are not transparent or that are relished by the college admissions committee because they want to brag about their student body's SAT scores. I mean, where does this mania begin? I mean, what, why? It feels like in utero, but um, sorry. <laughs> um, I mean, no, you... I, th I think it has a number of sources. Um, I mean, we're, I think we've become a more status-conscious society, and that has made people value elite, elite colleges with lustrous names even more. Um, I think we're a society that's been suffused for about a decade now with economic pessimism. So I think parents with the best of intentions, wanting to give their kids a leg up, are thinking, how do I do that? And they feel like the odds are better in life for my kid if I can muscle him or her toward one of these super selective colleges. And then the colleges um, have begun to use things like acceptance rates and SAT scores as bragging rights much more intensely than ever before. Um, so they are really feeding this by, for instance, trawling for applications. The best way for a college to lower its acceptance rate is to attract more applications. And so you have many, many colleges out there who are essentially ginning up desire just to frustrate it. They want you to apply so you can turn them down because that's how you get to a 5% acceptance rate. And you discuss in the book that the percentage rate has dropped or diminished to be 5% because of the European and Asian groups that are now applying, which didn't, wasn't true in the 1980s that's, or that's early 90s. One, yeah. well, that, that's, that's one, one of the factors. One right? piece of it. Another piece of it is kids are applying even in America across greater distances because air travel is more normal, more affordable than it once was. The common application enables a kid to add five or six schools to the number they're applying to without a great deal of extra effort. I mean, I remember the den in the house, in our house in suburban Connecticut, where I, with my mother's help, used the electric typewriter. To do, to do my essays, um, and you had to kind of like do each application one by one. Now you don't have to do it that way. Um, can we talk about the U.S. News and World Report and just, because it's so screwy, really, how they rank uh, the schools and how we seem to be so, I mean, I guess that's the first part of the question. The second, why are we so susceptible to lists and numbers? I mean, what... Because, 
because we're as insecure about colleges as we are about washers and dryers. And right. you want to look in consumer reports. No, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not making a joke. You want to look in consumer reports and be told what car to buy or what washer and sure. dryer. You know, uh, you also want to outsource your judgment and discretion when it comes to colleges. And U.S. News and World Report has done, admittedly, the most comprehensive and the best marketed rankings in the world. But what people, I don't think, understand is exactly how those rankings are put together and how manipulable, gameable they are. So, I mean, to take one thing, a, a big fraction of that ranking reflects what high school guidance counselors and then on the college level, what university presidents, provosts, and admissions deans have said in surveys about the colleges they're asked about. I've had college, I've had college <laughs> administrators say, I don't know what goes on at that college over there. So when I fill out the survey, I'm going by reputation. I'm going by how they ranked in US News last year. So it's a self-perpetuating phenomenon. It's crazy. You can, uh, they, they judge alumni giving rates. You can, you can do campaigns on campus to boost alumni participation in giving just to kind of score better that facet of the US News uh, metric. So it's, it's, it's just not, it's not what you think it is. It's not really kind of doing as thoughtful um, and as unbiased a survey of that college's worth as if you could, even if you could do that. But it's become so powerful at this point. I mean, it's easy. It's right. easy. You get to outsource your judgment, right. and yeah. Um, so, on that note of numbers and metrics and everything, can you just tell the audience a bit of these kind of? I mean, it's like the five percent. I mean, just some of the incredible stats about acceptances and. Do you, I mean, no, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot with yeah, having I, 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 <laughs> I don't have them in my head, but I, but I know. But just the crazy numbers that you mention of just how many kids are accepted to certain schools, um, what it used to be 20 years ago, right. you know, well, I mean. Tw 20, 20 years ago, there are many schools that were accepting 20% of their applicants that are now down to anywhere from 6 to 8% of their applicants. And the yield hasn't changed accordingly, if you know what I mean by yield. It's not like they're not like they're losing so many more of those applicants. So, um, yeah, I mean, that has become uh, much different. I, I want to say, though, the book is actually not about the admissions process. You know, so we, we're, we're talking right, right, right now, right. Uh, uh, we're talking within the space of about two chapters. My message, what I really want... Oops, oh. there goes everything. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I really want to do is change the conversation from why is it, like, from how difficult it is to get in and how do I get in to how am I going to use my college experience? Well, let's, let's talk about, like, if you could just tell me, I mean, you tell a lot of stories about various people who don't get their first choice. I mean, they get into maybe their backup school or whatever, and, what, and, and, and how the experiences really changes their life, that puts them on a track right. that, you know, they wouldn't have imagined. And as disappointed as they are when they enter, they leave really excited about what their future holds. And I, I guess, what were some of, if you could just tell us, like, you know, one or two of the... Well, there's, there was a young woman whose story is in the book, and I just, I just love her story. Her name's Jillian Vogel. She work, lives and works here in New York. Um, she was just dead set on getting into Brown. Um, and she just thought, like, all of life was going to be getting into Brown. She was devastated when she was deferred, after applying early, and she, and I, I, I describe this in the book, she wrote the most amazing letter because she knew her class rank was good, all these things were good, but she had a 24 on the ACT, which I didn't take the ACT, but I understand that's not good. You can get up to 36, somebody probably knows more. Anyway, um, so she 
determined to get into Brown, she wrote the, I can't, I can't believe Brown didn't admit her. She wrote the Brown Commission's, the Brown Admissions Committee a letter um, that was addressed to her ACT score. And it said, dear ACT score, I barely remember the morning that I got you. I think I probably hadn't <laughs> slept enough the night before. It has come to my attention that while you are the name of a very popular television program and the number of hours in a day, you're a rather lousy score, you know? And it went on like that, it was hilarious. When she shared it with me, I just thought there's really something wrong that Brown didn't let her in. Brown didn't let her in, neither did any of her other top five schools. She ended up going to her backup school, which was UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and because she felt a little bit behind the eight ball, and I describe this in more length in the book and then I'll shut up, I mean, she tackled UNC, she approached that school with, a, with, with an attitude of, I am gonna take every interesting course here, if it's not here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna exploit their deal with Duke and I'm gonna go over to Duke and take it. I, when she was telling me about how she organized her college experience, I felt ashamed because I did not use that university to, to its potential like she did. And it also made me feel that if we spent just a fraction of the time that we spend talking to kids about how hard it is to get into school, if we devoted that to talking about wherever you end up going, use, like, take a survey of that landscape and figure out you know, how splendid it is and how you're gonna wring the most out of it, we would just be doing an amazing service and those kids would have brighter futures because it's how you use college, it's not the name on the diploma. So is that, I mean, because I was gonna say, what was the impetus for writing this? I mean, was it that you felt all these people were incredibly concerned? We had lost, really, we had lost our vision of what education really meant. That's that. What, what college meant to kids, that we had become too focused on going to, too focused on the status of something right. and, and the possibility that it would give us a certain kind of future or that we could hope for it 50% more than if we went somewhere else. And was it that you thought, God, I've got to say something? I'm, I'm going to interview these kids and really... I'm, I'm seeing that people who aren't so determined, or if they deal with rejection, they're able to, to really give the experience. I mean, they look at it in a kind of enlightened way as a singular experience and they're lucky to have, rather than, oh. Well, the, the initial seed was um, watching, watching nieces and nephews, watching friends' kids go through it. The initial seed was, it became clear to me that we've infused this process with so much anxiety that there are all of these kids who really believe that they're going to maximize substantially their chances of a great life or even, deter or even be guaranteed one if they can just get into these schools. And there are these kids who conversely believe that if they get a no from these schools, it is, it is some binding verdict on their future and some, and some actual ju like meaningful judgment of their self-worth. And as I watched kids go through that and then I looked around me at the New York Times, thought about, I mean, I've been fortunate um, to, to work in a lot, of different, a lot of different areas of journalism and to interview lots of people. This belief that success was only going to be attainable or was going to be so much more attainable only through the Ivy League and its ilk, it just didn't match up with what I saw around me and the educational backgrounds and pedigrees of the people I knew. And so I felt like somebody needed to do a reality check so that we weren't freaking these kids out unnecessarily. As I went along, I think the book ended up being much more about um, this sort of cry to, uh, to talk about and think about how you use those college years, which are such a blessing, um, in a way that isn't about status, but is about you know, really developing skills, developing yourself, all that sort of thing. Do you think that, um, I mean, 
do you, I mean, because you, you give these examples in the book of people really being able to use the experience. Do you think that because of rejection? I mean, do you think that... Well, not, not all the... Um, a couple of the examples are about people who were rejected and then found a resilience. Right. But there are just as many stories of people who... Who went to never other set, universities. Yeah, who never right. set their sights on the most vaunted schools, um, but nonetheless found exactly what they needed or who chose to go to a less vaunted school for interesting reasons. So one of my favorite stories in the book is about a young man named David Rusenko. Um, he and two classmates from Penn State started a tech venture called Weebly, which I wasn't familiar with, but it has made them very, very rich men at the age of 30. He had gotten into Carnegie Mellon, um, but he chose instead to go to Penn State because he felt like, I've got the computer nerd, computer geek thing down pat. That's who I am. But if I'm going to become a businessman, I want to develop some social skills. I want to, I want to be more fluid and flexible in, in environments away from the computer. So he chose Penn State, made a point of going to frat parties, made a point of going to football games. And he will tell you he believes his extraordinary success owes something to knowing what he himself needed out of college and choosing a college to give him what he needed rather than just choosing a college with a lustrous name. Now, what about those who are not privileged in these ways and are sort of being able to, I mean, the inequality of education and opportunity. I mean, how, what happens if, you know, you have a guidance counselor who doesn't really tell you much about college? I mean, how, and you're not exposed to all these things, what, but... What? You know, what, hap what happens is you're at a disadvantage, and we, need to, and we need to deal with that. And it's not fair that at certain private schools there will be an army of 12 people to not only help you apply, but if you need, if you need aid, to help you figure out how to access it. There's much more aid out there than we people know realize. About, sure. And one of the real tragedies is some of the kids who need it simply don't know how to access it. But I get a little frustrated when we talk... Uh, and when we blame colleges for not admitting more low-income students, which they ad admit too few, because if we're going to try to remedy these inequalities at the age of 17 or 18, we're in big trouble. I mean, we need, we need to figure out ways to intervene and make sure K through 10, because once a kid gets to the age of 17 or 18, if that kid has had an inferior education and hasn't had good guidance, it's awfully hard to remedy it at the college juncture. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I... I was telling you that I was going to ask you about um, the Jill Lepore article about richer and poor and just opportunity and education. And it strikes me as, I mean, this, this, your book really looks at kids who are exposed to that, you know, are exposed to what it is to go to college. And through those experiences, and they're from all different walks of life, um, but I'm just, I guess, the other question is what happens with those people who don't know. And as you're saying, we need to expose much earlier on education has to be a, a better exposure to many, many things. Right. No, I mean, and, and in the book, there are a couple of people um, who came from very, yes. uh, very humble backgrounds um, and were just fortunate enough in various ways to connect with higher education. I tell the story of Howard Schultz, who's the CEO, chairman of Starbucks. He grew up here in New York very, very uh, humble circumstances. He'll tell you poor. He even, at one point during college, would sell blood to help get the money he needed to keep going. He went to Northern Michigan University. Um, it didn't hold him back. I tell the story of Dick Parsons, who's the former chairman of um, Time Warner and Citigroup. He went from, again, not a economically blessed family here in New York to the University of Hawaii, um, and from there launched an incredible career. So if people are lucky enough to somehow 
get onto that track, and if they're people of extraordinary resourcefulness and just kind of in, intrinsic skills and, and competence and intelligence, um, my point is you, you, you can get anywhere um, if you're driven enough and you don't need the fancy name. Um, now I'd like to talk about what are you working on now? Well, I'm taking a couple of weeks off to talk to people like you about the book. Um, are you, that's the answer. <laughs> are you, um, you going to work on another project that has to do, another nonfiction project? Or are you on this book right now and well, working on you, I'll, many I'll, pieces? I'll give you an answer you're not expecting. Okay. I, have, I have two other books in the works. And the first one is a meatloaf cookbook. Really? Correct. Fantastic. Family recipes? Hmm? Family recipes? Family recipes, recipes of my own invention. I have an incredible blue cheese meatloaf. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change your life. Just wait a year. Um, the other thing is, because we are obviously in the library, I'm very curious about um, the books you've been reading recently and what you've loved. Is there something that you... I always draw a blank when I'm asked this question. Really? Yeah, yeah. So I've got to think What about, first. like, it doesn't have to be that recent, like five months ago. Because um, when someone asks me what I'm reading now, I, I, think, I, I think of my bedside table and I think, well, a couple of things. I don't know. But, no, it's, it sounds like I never yeah. read, but I read all the time. But I always, it's like when I, as soon as someone says, where should I go to eat? What should I watch on TV or, <laughs> or what should I read? I literally go blank. It's like a, <laughs> I, should, I should go to a doctor about that. Um, uh, Lisa Bankoff, help me out. Dear committee members, is that what it was called? Huh? Do I have the title correct? Okay, Dear Committee Members is a delightful, delightful comic novel that's, that's, that is, I guess, a kind, a kind of epistolary novel. The whole thing is written, um, it, it, it tells a story, but all through a single faculty member's exchanges with other people as he's writing recommendations for students, for fellow faculty. It's, it's just ingeniously constructed, um, and it's, it's, it's light, but not, but, but I don't mean like light, like like shallow, um, and you can read it in four hours, and you'll have a smile on your face oh, and laugh the whole way. You have been living and breathing education, even your. You know, I didn't even read it for that reason. Right, I but read it's it, perfect. I read it because I mean, I, I kind of like to do things by serendipity, and I was looking, and it had a high rating. Right, right, right. On iBooks or whatever, <laughs> and then it, I looked at. This is really embarrassing. And then I looked at the number of pages, and I'm like, I'm there, you know. <laughs> I also really liked We Are Not... I, I, I'm going to get all these titles wrong, yeah. but um, We Are Not Ourselves, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. incredible um, Alzheimer's book by mm -hmm. Matthew Thomas, mm -hmm, I think it was. Mm -hmm. I, I was very moved by that, and I'm mentioning that because that's like 650 pages, so it, it redeems me <laughs> from the short one. What about a classic that you've sort of discovered recently or a classic that you love and always go back to? That's tough. That's really a total blank, yeah. Um, every couple of years, I reread *The Age of Innocence*. It's one of my favorites, it's a good but that's not a recent discovery. But that's just—I'm um, an Edith Wharton fan, and I just think that's a particularly magnificent novel. No, and every time you probably read it, you—it's different. And some. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm yeah. blessed with a really bad short-term memory, <laughs> so every time I read it, I'm surprised by what happens because it's all gone. Yeah. Uh, okay, now I'm, we're going to go out to the audience for a few questions. Um, I'm going to give this mic to this lovely lady, and then I'll just point at you. Hi, my name is Debbie, and we're from North Carolina, a more rural area. And in our uh, small town, community colleges are very important. And I was wondering if Mr. Bruni had any ideas about community colleges. I think they fulfill a great role. 
It's not something, to be honest, I talk about in the book, but it's been coming up a lot lately because the president obviously had um, the proposal he put out there about free community college. The state of Tennessee is doing that, and people are very happy with the way it's going. Um, I think community colleges can be a great way um, to sort of, I don't know what the right verb is, but they can be a great kind of bridge to higher education for people who are having trouble affording it or people who aren't in other ways um, able to go right into a four-year place. I'm a, little con there's, I'm a little concerned when we talk about free community college about the disparity in community colleges. So um, I worry a little bit when we're talking about public spending for free community college that we're careful about making sure we're sending those kids and we're sending that money to community colleges that are worth something because there are enormous differences in that world between the good community colleges and the less good community colleges. Hi, I'm, a, um, I'm in a, a college instructor, and I'm wondering if you could shed any light on the importance of graduation rates as a criteria by which various colleges are considered in, for example, U.S. News and World Report, because it's so antithetical to a good education. That's a wonderful, wonderful question. I'm really glad you asked it. So, one of the things that U.S. News and a lot of ranking agencies take into account is graduation rates. They're judging schools by how successfully they shepherd people toward graduation. And it puts a school like, I'm going to name one that I kind of profile for reasons in the book, Arizona State University. It puts it at a great disadvantage because if you are serving um, a lower income population of kids, your graduation rate is perforce going to be much lower than the graduation rate at a college that's serving more economically advantaged kids because there's there are great great statistics studies done the 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 chance of completing college rises exponentially based on your family's wealth which is about the kind of safety net you have under you and all that so when we are judging colleges by graduation rates if those colleges care about those rankings we're actually actively discouraging them from taking on low-income students and I don't know if that's what you were getting at, but that's a big concern of mine. Is that something you were? What really concerns me more is that the administration, of course, will try to whoosh students through oh, yeah. as fast as they possibly can. Yeah, and you have great inflation. And, yeah, a graduate. Great inflation and also students taking six courses yeah. per semester. That's become pretty normal. They don't is, have any time yeah. to do any work for the well, courses. Well, this is, this is also an example of how manipulable certain stats are to impress, you know, I mean, if you want to graduate all your students, you can graduate all your students. You can just require very little of them and have terrible grade inflation, which is already a problem. Can you talk about for-profit colleges? Uh, for-profit colleges, not, again, not something I talk much about in the book. One of the few places I look at them is um, there's a very interesting, I, I'm trying to get at the question of whether whether there's solid evidence out there that the most vaunted selective universities have some you know, kind of greater force in your life in terms of making you happy. There's an interesting ongoing project called the, um, I'm always gonna, I'm gonna get the, the names reversed. I think it's called the Gallup-Purdue Index, but it might be the Purdue Gallup. It's a joint project of Purdue University um, and the Gallup polling organization. And they're doing an amazingly comprehensive, uh, the, resp the respondent numbers are incredible, look at how people uh, report on their career fulfillment and the, the degree to which they're thriving across various sectors of their lives vis-a-vis -vis where they went to college. 
Um, it's interesting, they found no correlation between going to one of the 100 most selective colleges and feeling more professionally fulfilled later on, feeling more fulfilled in other aspects of life. They have found so far that they're getting lower numbers for the graduates of for-profit institutions. So that's one thing I know because that happens to come into the book, but the book really doesn't look at the for-profit world. Thank you. Um, I'm a little concerned about the fact that um, that um, the many colleges have presidents who are making like hundreds, millions, eight hundred thousand million. Yeah. And I'm worried about the fact that there's fewer ten tenured professors and more adjunct professors, and the impact that's having on col quality college education. Um, yes. Yeah, so, did everyone hear that? Or yeah, I mean, there's there's been an incredible salary inflation for presidents of colleges. The president of Columbia University gets written about a lot in this context, and I've gotten emails from faculty members at Columbia who are really concerned about it. That is a problem that's part of a much bigger thing, which is one of the reasons presidents are pulling in those numbers is because what they're really responsible for is bringing money into into institutions and increasing the amount of money coming in. And that gets into other problems whereby schools are trying to up the amount of money they have so they can spend lavishly, so that it, they can impress students with these lavish facilities, these layers and layers of kind of services that have nothing to do with academic instruction. And the way the money courses through the system beginning with that president's salary um, often has very little to do with learning and education. And it's something that's definitely gotten out of control. I am the end of the line, apparently. Uh, Two-prong two question. Uh, first question, you, you were talking about getting the K through 10 kids in. Um, I went to Antioch uh, in the 70s when they were bringing in kids, essentially, from the ghetto who had no education, and it was a tremendous failure, trying to throw money at a situation. Um, I'm curious, the first part of the question is, how do you change that, other than just throwing money at a situation? And the second is, what do you think the effect of something like Teach for America has on possibly changing the culture of going for the best college and, you know, pushing kids to go to Harvard, Yale, North Carolina. I have a kid at North Carolina, so to me it's a good school. Um, in terms of what you experienced at Antioch, that, that's sort of what I was referring to. If we ask colleges to solve the social mobility problem just by letting in kids who they, whom they wouldn't normally let in, but whom we failed from K through 10, we're not doing, we're not doing anyone any favors. We're asking colleges to dumb themselves down for all students, um, and we're not doing those kids any favors because they haven't picked up the skills they need from the very beginning. Um, Teach for America, um, it's interesting, that, that's an ongoing thing, the numbers are going down. Um, interestingly, Teach for America is in a weird way part of the admissions mania I'm talking about because a lot of kids have gone into Teach for America or have set their sights on it because it's the next competition that they can ace. So one of the things I kept hearing um, from professors at Princeton when I taught there last year, and one of the things I heard from many other people at selective institutions is they're very worried that what we teach kids through the, this overheated college admissions process where we ask them to jump through all these hoops and end up in the winner's circle is they become they almost like their, their natural default rhythm is to find competitions to end up in the winner's circle. And interestingly, Teach for America, while it's not the Wall Street job that is what some kids want to get because that's the next winner's circle, has become its own kind of winner's circle because it has a low acceptance rate. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, everybody.
Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.